You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, The Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off last time, Captain William Kidd had been convicted of murder and one count of piracy. The sentences had not yet been passed by the judges, but there was no question that William Kidd faced two death sentences. This trial is frustrating. The scales of justice were weighted against Captain Kidd. There was never a chance, no conceivable circumstances, under which Captain Kidd could walk away from this trial a free man. And at a certain point, Captain Kidd realized that. During one particularly perjurous piece of testimony, when the witness was lying, William Kidd interrupted his testimony. He said, addressing the Chief Justice Ward of the court, quote, He knows no more of these things than you do. This fellow used to sleep five or six months together in the hold. End quote. It got a good chuckle from the audience, the kind of thing that, given room to breathe, might win over a jury. Instead of that, though, one of the other justices broke in and said, quote, I assure you he gives a very good account of the matter. And that was that. There was no questioning the validity of his testimony. Now, I'm pretty sure that... You know what? Let me check here. Uh, nope. The judge was not there. He's just declaring, out of the blue, that this testimony was true. There was to be no questioning of anything he said. It's hard to win a trial when the judges are working for the prosecution. 
there's really only ever going to be one outcome. This is episode 296, The Execution of Captain Kidd. Now, as much as we talk about how heavily this case was weighted against Captain Kidd, and it was, it wasn't entirely one-sided. Captain Kidd did have the opportunity to call a few witnesses for his defense, and some of them actually were able to attend the trial. Now, all the people who actually knew what happened on the adventure galley, well, they were either currently on trial for piracy, or they were testifying against Captain Kidd. None of them were great witnesses. But Captain Kidd could call in a few character witnesses who would defend him. If we go way back to the beginning of the Nine Years' War, shortly after William Kidd lost the Blessed William, he served as a ship's captain under an Admiral Hewitson. Hewitson said during the trial of Captain Kidd, quote, he fought as well as any man I ever saw. That was in regard to a particular action at sea in which Hewitson and Captain Kidd alone fought against half a dozen French ships. It was the same action in which Kidd earned the title, A Mighty Man. During the questioning, Captain Kidd asked his old commander, quote, Do you think I was a pirate? Hewitson answered, I know his men would have gone a pirateering, and he refused it, and his men seized upon the ship. End quote. Now, first of all, a pirateering is my favorite phrase ever, and I hope you like it too, because I'm going to be using it a lot. Secondly, let me check my notes. Nope, Hewitson wasn't on the adventure galley either. So, the only people that were there that could testify, and that the judges in this trial declared were telling the truth, were men who were testifying against Captain Kidd. Take Dr. Joseph Bradenham. During one particularly damning piece of testimony, Captain Kidd asked Joseph Bradenham, quote, Are you not promised your life to take away mine? Which is a pretty great question, if you ask me. It's a question worth asking. And it's a question that deserves an answer. Bradenham earned his freedom by testifying against Kidd. But one of the judges broke in before Bradenham could answer and said, quote, He is not bound to answer that question. He is very fit to be made in evidence for the king. End quote. This kind of thing happened over and over and over, all day long. There was nothing Captain Kidd could do about it, so by the end of the first day of his trial, he just stopped engaging. When the prosecution would get done questioning a witness, they would ask William Kidd if he wanted to ask the witness any questions to cross-examine him. And Kidd just stood there, not looking at anyone and not saying anything. If the prosecutors pressed, you know, Mr. Kidd, isn't it time you ask him a question? Kidd would look at them and just say, no. And you really can't blame him here. At that point, he had two death sentences over his head, and the court is obviously, clearly biased against him, so why bother? Why play their game? Nearing the end of the second day, as the proceedings were finally beginning to wrap up, 
The court asked William Kidd if he had anything to offer in his defense. Now, he didn't because those French passports, the cornerstone of his defense, had been hidden away. Nobody knows where they were. Given everything that Captain Kidd had experienced during his trial, he looked at the judges and said, quote, I will not trouble the court any more, for it is folly. Which, that's a line I love. Earns a lot of respect from me. But on the other hand, that does make the rest of the trial a little bit dull. There's not much to say when Captain Kidd is just kind of standing there stoically, when he's refusing to bother fighting the charges anymore. Richard Zacks in The Pirate Hunter compares what the court was doing here to a gladiator fight. You know, a man who's condemned to die and is there to give a show to the masses. That's what he says Captain Kidd was there to do, and I kind of can't disagree with that. But at a certain point, he decided to stop playing. As everything was wrapping up, Chief Justice Ward had a closing statement. He told the court, quote, Pirates are hostess humani generis, enemies of mankind, but they are especially so to those who rely upon trade. These things that they are charged with are the most mischievous and prejudicial to trade that can happen. End quote. And that's a, that's a theme that runs all throughout this trial. The prosecution and the judges harp over and over again on the fact that everything that Captain Kidd allegedly did was damaging to the trade of the Empire, and trade is the lifeblood of the Empire. And it's important to remember that all of these men were heavily invested in the trade of the Empire. So Captain Kidd was doomed. He was found guilty on all five counts of piracy and his one count of murder. His accomplices, notably Hugh Parrott, Abel Owens, and Nicholas Churchill, as well as three others, well, they were found guilty of those same five counts of piracy. However, those three cabin boys, including Richard Barleycorn, were found not guilty. Which is pretty great. I mean, not perfect, they still had to go back to Newgate Prison because, having been housed there, they had to pay bail. They had to pay for their stint in prison, despite being found not guilty. And it's not like they had a support structure or a family or any money or the ability to get a job. Those three boys had to sell themselves into indentured servitude. Servitude which would have been elongated because the first several years would have been spent paying off their bail to Newgate Prison. I can only hope that some of them managed to get sent to the West Indies. You know, I love the idea of Richard Barleycorn, here in 1701, as a boy of about eight years old, getting cleared of his charges for piracy, and then going to, I don't know, Nassau, where he would run away from his indentured servitude to join a pirate crew. We don't know what happens to them. You know, those three cabin boys disappear from history, but I'll say my headcanon here is that, yeah, he sailed under Blackbeard. Why not? Certainly nicer than their almost certainly real stories. 
Once that was all taken care of, the court had one final surprise in store. The door in the back of the chamber was pulled open. Boots rang out on the floor, a pair of constables walked through, followed by Robert Culliford. It wasn't just Culliford. Several of his men, including those that were initially to be tried with Captain Kidd, were charged with the capture of the Mocha. Now, this was all ostensibly tied to the crimes of Captain Kidd, mostly because Kidd was supposed to have given Culliford those four guns, but that didn't happen. The charges were then read out, and the accused asked to enter a plea. Cutlass Culliford, arguably the greatest pirate ever to have lived up to that point, entered a plea of not guilty. This caused a bit of a stir in the courtroom. All of the judges and all the prosecutors sat there for a moment, confused. They began to whisper amongst each other, they shuffled their papers around, they tapped their feet. Clearly, something was wrong. This was not what they had expected. But a plea had been entered, so they had to move on, and they almost did. But all of a sudden, a pair of Culliford's lawyers burst into the courtroom. They rushed up to the bench and began an urgent sidebar with the prosecution. They were whispering and discussing something urgent, clearly. The prosecutors then took that sidebar up to the judges while Culliford's lawyers went to go discuss it with him. Everything here was unorthodox and poorly timed, but the lawyers announced that Robert Culliford had changed his mind. Robert Culliford pled guilty. Now, this was certainly shocking to the gallery, to the jury, but not to the prosecution or the judges. This is what they had expected. If you'll recall, Robert Culliford and a number of his men surrendered back on St. Mary's Island to the son of the man who had been empowered to grant pardons in the name of the king. Now, that really hadn't worked out for Robert Culliford. Once he arrived in England, he was arrested and thrown in jail. And I'm not sure that since then anybody had really talked to him. At least, it's odd that he pled not guilty, and then his lawyers were like, Whoa, whoa, pump the brakes here. No, you're supposed to plead guilty, man. Because, well, look, if you've got a pardon, by definition, if you're going to accept it, you have to have committed the crime for which you are to be pardoned. So Robert Culliford and his men all pled guilty. Now that's dangerous, you know, it's a, it's a risk to take. The judges deliberated here. If they decided that the pardons were not legitimate, the pirates had just pled guilty. They would be sent to jail and eventually to the gallows. But if the judges decided that the pardons were legitimate, the pirates walk free one by one, Culliford's men were called to the bar and the judges gave their ruling. One by one, Robert Culliford's men were denied their pardons and convicted of high seas piracy. Then they came to Cutlass Culliford himself. And I can only imagine how Captain Kidd may have been feeling here. Was he enjoying seeing his old rival getting some comeuppance? I kind of don't think so. I kind of doubt that William Kidd cared at this point. 
Why bother getting invested in the fate of a person that you despise? At that point, what's the point? But when it came time for judgment to be passed on Cutlass Culliford, the judge said, quote, The judgment against Robert Culliford is respited. End quote. Which is to say that the pardon was ruled invalid just like the others, but he was not to have judgment passed on him yet. He had a respite from that. The royal prosecutors, not just here in the courtroom, but, you know, working all around London, well, they had plans for Robert Culliford. There were other pirates, pirates who had attacked Mughal interests and company interests, and many of them Robert Culliford would be able to testify against, as long as they made sure that the axe continued to hang over his head. For now, though, while Robert Culliford's men were chained and waiting return to prison, Robert Culliford himself was led out of the courtroom a free man, more or less. You know, it's complicated. He wasn't allowed to go free exactly, but he was not in chains and not bound for Newgate. Now, I'd imagine that William Kidd was a bit more invested at this development. You know, seems pretty unfair here. I, if I were in his position, I'd be angry. I'd be furious. But nonetheless, it's not like that's going to do him any good. Once that last little showpiece was over, the representative of the Admiralty, a Dr. Oxenden, read the sentencing to the court. You, the prisoners at the bar, you have been tried by the law of the land and convicted. Nothing now remains but that sentence be passed according to the law. The sentence of the law is this. You shall be taken from the place where you are, and be carried to the place from whence you came, and from thence to the place of execution, and there be severely hanged by your necks until you be dead. May the Lord have mercy on your souls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches 
April 9th. William Kidd and his fellows were led back to Newgate Prison, but they weren't taken back to their old cells or the communal holding area where many of them had been staying. Condemned prisoners were held in private cells and closely monitored. The fear was that they would harm themselves or harm one another. If you know you're going to be hanged, what's to stop you from ending it yourself or maybe getting some revenge on somebody who had wronged you? What are they going to do, hang you twice? And the point here, the reason that they were to be hanged was to be hanged publicly in front of all the people of England. The wardens of Newgate were going to ensure that that happened. Oddly, William Kidd had a lot more freedom in that cell than he had had for about a year and a half now. We don't have too many details on all his activities there, but prisoners in those cells were permitted to order food and drinks. If they had a partner or the money to pay for it, they were permitted conjugal visits while in those cells. In fact, for the condemned, there was very little that they were not permitted to do as long as they arrived on the day of execution, whole, to be killed. One of the visits that every man in the condemned cells could expect was a visit from the priests. The priests were there to take the prisoner's last confession. Now, of course, this was important for their immortal souls, but it was also important for the record. A lot of our accounts of what actually happened during the Golden Age of Piracy come from these last confessions. And all of Kidd's men made a final confession. None of it changes our understanding of what happened on the Adventure Galley. In fact, most of what all of them said lines up pretty closely with Captain Kidd's version of events. But Captain Kidd himself neglected to make a final confession. In fact, he refused to make a final confession, because, as he said, he had nothing to confess. 16 May, 1701, was William and Sarah's ten-year wedding anniversary. By this point, Sarah Kidd was back in Manhattan with their children, including a little girl, just a little bit over a year old, that would never get the chance to meet her father. And for Sarah, there was no news of William. The last she'd heard was that her husband was going to stand trial for piracy, but she could not have known the results of the trial, or maybe even whether or not her husband was dead. There had just been no ship and therefore no news. I don't imagine that that tenth wedding anniversary was an easy day. On that same day back in England, William Kidd had a visitor. The guards came to tell him that someone was there to see him, and I can't help but imagine that, for a moment... Captain Kidd had a glimpse of hope. Maybe, somehow, by some miracle, his sentence would be reprieved. Maybe some of the Whigs, his old allies and his old patrons, maybe they'd come through for him. He hadn't named any names. He'd been loyal to them. Maybe they'd found a way to commute his sentence. Richard Zacks puts forward an absolutely heartbreaking notion here. He suggests that maybe William Kidd thought on his 10th wedding anniversary 
that his wife had disobeyed his orders and come to England to see him one last time. But it wasn't Sarah, and it wasn't some lawyer from the Whigs to take him from this cell. It was no one that William Kidd would have wanted to see. In fact, it was nobody that he'd ever met before. The two men who came to visit him were agents for the former owner of the Quida merchant. They were there to ask him for the location of the Quida. You know, where had he hidden it? They wanted to know, but Captain Kidd did not know where it was. He didn't have a treasure map to give them. He'd lost the ship when he went to Boston. The two men said that they could get him free if they gave him the location of their ship and their treasure. But I'm pretty sure that was a lie. I don't think they had that kind of power. To me, it sounds like they realized William Kidd was about to die, and this was their last chance to reclaim their property. And that was it. That was what William Kidd had to comfort him in his final days. According to the priest who would visit him every few days, William Kidd never lost hope. He believed he was innocent, and he never stopped believing that there was a pardon coming for him. While the other men in those cells were spending their final days in a haze of sex and cheap booze to dull their fear, William Kidd was sober, quiet, stoic, and angry. Until, that is, the 22nd of May. On the 22nd, William Kidd spent all the money he had left in the world. Not much, really, but enough to buy a good amount of rum. When William Kidd had a good amount of rum, he began to drink. And he kept drinking. And he kept drinking. All day he ranted at the injustice of it all, the inconstancy of the mighty, those men who had turned on him, who had betrayed him, men he had trusted that had left him to this. He swore that he would see those men in hell. William Kidd drank that rum all through the night. He didn't sleep a wink, he just drank and ranted. When morning came, his jailers found him there, a, a drunk, angry Scotsman, ranting at the king, ranting at God, at everyone that had wronged him to bring him to this. Well, those jailers picked him up, dragged him from his cell, and loaded him onto a cart. That cart was filled with men. There was William Kidd, two of his men, including Hugh Parrott, as well as four of Robert Culliford's men, an Irish pirate and two French pirates who were there on unconnected counts of piracy. These rides to the gallows were never present, especially for high-profile criminals. But it wasn't as bad as it could have been. William Kidd was a very high-profile criminal, and there were guards lining the streets, regular army soldiers there to guard his trip to the gallows. They wanted to make sure that nothing untoward would happen before it was intended to. And William Kidd gave the crowds a show. All along his route, he was ranting at the crowds, cursing them, cursing the king, cursing the admiralty, cursing Lord Bellamont, all the Whig lords. He was furious at this point, and still very drunk. Finally, though, 
the cart stopped at Execution Dock. When Captain Kidd looked over the River Thames, he would have seen a forest of ship's masts. Every yacht, every pleasure boat in London seemed to be waiting out there, filled with all of those who did not want to rub elbows with the common rabble, but who nonetheless wanted to see William Kidd die. The men were unloaded from the cart and lined up in front of the gallows. Marshal John Cheek from the Admiralty came to stand before them, and the crowd fell silent. London fell silent. Out on their boats, the great men and women of England watched through brass spyglasses, while John Cheek removed a handful of papers from his script. Captain Kidd's two men, including Hugh Parrott, were handed sheets of paper, as were all four of Robert Culliford's men. Those sheets of paper were pardons from the Crown, last-minute reprieves from execution. Those six men would be spared by the grace of God and King William on May the 23rd, 1701. Captain Kidd did not receive a pardon. As prisoners go, Captain Kidd was difficult. He really was very drunk. He almost had to be carried to the gallows. When they put him on that little stool they put you on before they... Wrap the noose around your neck. Someone had to stand there and hold him. And once the noose was in place, they had to hold him very still. He was going to die that day, but they didn't want it to happen before time. Once all four prisoners, William Kidd, the Irishman, and those two French pirates, once they were all in place, standing on their stools, nooses around their necks, the priest came forward and said a prayer. The prisoners were granted leave to say their last words. The two Frenchmen uttered prayers of their own. The Irishmen begged for God's mercy. But William Kidd, though he'd been ranting, screaming all day, at that point he fell silent. Finally, the executioner gave the order, and the four stools were pulled out from under those four pirates. All of their ropes went taut. And then Captain Kidd's rope broke. It was a long-standing custom, by no means a law, but crowds all around Europe, and I'm sure the world, took this as a sign from God that the condemned should not be killed. When the execution failed, it meant that they weren't supposed to be executed in the first place. It was seen as a, a miracle. A miracle from God to spare the innocent from an unjust death. Crowds had been known in the past and after this several times to swarm the gallows when a prisoner had been spared by God to prevent their being killed. It seemed that something similar might happen here on May 23rd, 1701. The crowd began to call for Captain Kidd to be spared. They said that God had made his intentions clear and when it appeared that they were not going to be listened to, they began to grow a little agitated. But, as we said, Captain Kidd had many soldiers there that day to guard him from the crowd to make sure that he faced the judgment. 
The crown wasn't going to let a little something like the mercy of God get in the way of killing this pirate. After all, they had to send a message that interfering with the profits of the empire would not be tolerated. When Captain Kidd was picked back up, he had apparently been sobered up by his ordeal. The priest on duty that day, a Father Lorraine, well, he walked up to speak with Captain Kidd one last time. Kidd was reported to have asked the priest to send his love to his wife Sarah and to their children, and he said his greatest regret was, quote, the thought of his wife's sorrow at his shameful death. With his final statement taken, the executioner pulled Kidd's supports again. William Kidd fell. The rope grew taut, and this time it did not break. He kicked, and he struggled, and he fought, but eventually he fell limp and died. Later that night, King William III of England would sup with the Earl of Romney. Now that's a man who stood at the head of the Whigs in England, a man who had paid for Captain Kidd's ship the Adventure Galley. He was the man behind Captain Kidd's mission who had then abandoned William Kidd to his fate. The Earl of Romney and the King, now that William Kidd was dead, had something to celebrate. Once he'd stopped moving, Captain Kidd, his body anyway, was cut down. His body was carried to a custom-built iron cage called a gibbet, and he was locked inside. The cage was loaded onto a cart and carried to Tilbury Point, that's a fortress overlooking the River Thames that every ship entering London would have to pass. Every ship entering London would have to look at the hanging body of Captain William Kidd to see the fate of any man who decided to turn pirate. By order of King William, the body of Captain Kidd was to hang at Tilbury Point for no less than three years.
Tonight 